0: Verse 1, Saul lived for one year and then became became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench in the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered up the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Saul went out to meet and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not done what the Lord commanded you. And then I'll end with this last sentence. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal and the rest of the chapter is not pretty as Israel suffers under the domination of the Philistines. Simpler sermon than some. There's really four points. The first is just to notice the goodness of God because this is exactly what's happening as Saul and the Israelites are getting grace they do not deserve. Right now, it's kind of a sweet ride because God has personally selected the king. Then God sent his favorite prophet Samuel to come and present him, to ordain him, to make sure people know who he is. But better than sending Samuel, God sends the Holy Spirit who rushes upon Saul at least twice that we see. One of those rushings, God spurred Saul up from the inside. He was filled with righteous indignation, and he decided it was time to go and fulfill God's mission and save God's people. He went to war against Nahash and the Ammonites, and there was a great victory. And at this point in time, Saul is a hero. Israel is so happy with their king. They're unified around him. His public approval numbers are at an all-time high. Then came the worship service. The worship service like none other, when I think God poured out his spirit again and there was revival in the land. All the people understood there was a God. All the people understood they had sinned. All the people understood that they deserved death. All the people confessed their sins, talked to the priest, their mediator, asked him to pray for them, and all the people heard God is not angry with you. There is no need to fear. And they all swore fidelity to God as they understood, oh, there's blessings with obedience and there's curses with disobedience. As for us and for our king, we will follow the Lord. What a day of revival. Like I said, it's a sweet day in Israel. But at the beginning of chapter 13, I think several years have passed. Our English translations are different. I can explain that to you later. But several years have passed. The young, tall, and handsome Saul has a son named Jonathan who's quite a warrior in his own stead, as you see here. Saul, who has access to 330,000 troops, has now sent everybody home. Is that because the mission is accomplished? I mean, he keeps 3,000, 2,000 with him, 1,000 with his son a little bit further south in close connection with one another, but he sends everyone else home. Meanwhile, the Philistines are still ravaging the land. He has not fulfilled his mission. We see a passive leader, someone who's not fighting for God's honor and those underneath his realm of authority. A poor leader he is, but Jonathan, his son, shines brightly. You're going to see him shining again over and over again. Jonathan appears to be kind of the model of the disciple who honors the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the king that God chooses regardless of who that king is. So Jonathan takes his 1,000 men and he mops up and Geba at one of the garrisons or one of the governors near him. He just wipes them out and Saul, Saul is elated. Never has a father been more proud of his boy That's my son, Saul. He blows the trumpet. It's the war trumpet. He's emboldened. His son has now led him as he's like, it's time for action. And all the Israelites here, what? (laughs) Did you notice that when I read it? All the Israelites here, Saul has won a great victory. Are you kidding me? Have you ever seen a leader somewhere who takes credit for something that someone else does? That's what Saul does here. And in a little while, Saul will do the exact opposite when he does wrong, is he will explain away his actions. That's another sign of a poor leader, being passive, taking credit for that which other people do, and not taking responsibility when you sin. This is who Saul is. Well, what happens at this point? Israel gathers. Israel gathers at Gilgal. Why are they at Gilgal? Well, we know earlier, a couple chapters back, God told Saul, or God told Samuel to tell Saul, I need you to do what your hand finds to do and then go and wait for me at Gilgal. I believe that's a few years back. But I think this must have been either re-communicated or this is standard operating procedures that Saul, before he goes to war, is to gather at Gilgal. Why? Because that's where God shows up with his priest. And when God shows up with his priest, you have someone instructing you, someone praying for you, someone leading you in worship, someone who may even receive special command from the Lord and be able to tell you how you're going to achieve victory or basically sit back and watch the Lord achieve victory for you. So everybody's at Gilgal, and this is just all good news. How is God going to do this? How is God going to win the victory? Will he use 318 servants as he did against five kings with Abraham? Will he use pestilence as he did with Egypt? Will he use fire and brimstone as he did with Sodom? Will he use trumpeters parading around a city as he did with the Jericho walls? Will he use a a strong man with the jawbone of an ass? How will God use these people? What is God getting ready to do? It's a big day. It's a sweet day. At Gilgal, we have the king of kings with his prophet Samuel, his priest Samuel, and his king Saul. This is sweet. And God is going to be glorified. His enemies are going to be humiliated, and his people are going to be protected and safeguarded. But just because it's a good day for God's people does not mean there is an absence of hostility. Never believe the lies of prosperity theology that God would have you come to Jesus, be reconciled in him, and go on vacation for the rest of your life. For we have a war to fight, as we've seen in other sermons. We see the hostility of the wicked as the Philistines are now infuriated. You know, everything was kind of good as long as there was passive Saul. But this now, Jonathan, who goes on the offensive, is causing problems. So at this point, the beast is awakened. I mean, if you remember in World War II, does anybody here remember World War II? I don't. I've seen the History Channel. But America was kind of staying out of it until Pearl Harbor. And it's almost like, oh, no. You didn't. Or maybe some of us remember 9-11. We even have a country song that we like to talk about. That There was a day when they sent those planes into our buildings and Uncle Sam got up and shined his shoes because he was ready to, to go do some business. And the rest of the world just waited to see the red, white, and blue raining down on you as the song goes. But the idea was there was this sleeping giant you awakened it. Well, that's what you see with wickedness here. Philistines are kind of sharing property with God's people. Jonathan has his way with them at one garrison, and now there's going to be hell to pay. We see a huge number of chariots, maybe not quite 30,000. There may have been a scribal error there. I can show you that later. Huge number of chariots, huge number of horsemen, and so many soldiers that it looks like God's covenant promises have been with them. They're like the sand of the seashore. And they are gathered, and they're getting ready to just wipe out Israel. Saul and his people are at Gilgal, and what are they doing? They are waiting. And while they wait, the Philistines gather their forces. While they wait, the Philistines march on Micmash. Chapter 13 begins with it being Saul's headquarters. Halfway through the chapter, it already belongs to the Philistines. While Saul and the Israelites wait, the Israelites start recognizing the trouble. They realize they're hemmed in. It's like they're they're caught between Egypt and the Red Sea, and they have this incredible fear seizing them. And while they wait for God and his prophet to show up, the Israelites, trembling with fear, start taking off for the hills, for the rocks, for the holes, for the caves, for the tombs, Anywhere they can hide, some even are a wall going across the Jordan River. They're deserters. They're not going up against this enemy of God and God's people. From a human perspective, things are not looking good. Anyone could recognize this. Saul is outarmed. He's outmanned. The Philistines are organizing themselves. His people, they're heading for the hills. And God's prophet is nowhere to be found. These are desperate days. And these are days when Saul takes matters into his own hands. Maybe the big transition point right there. In your most desperate days, will you take matters into your own hand? Will you wait upon God's priest? Or will you do the work and become your own self-priest? This is where we see the sin of self-priesting. Saul believes in God. He really does. I mean, he's seen what God has done. He knows God has chosen him. God has shown a bunch of signs to him at different times, making sure he knows you're just the king of the king of kings. Saul knows he needs God's wisdom. He needs to know what God wants him to do. He knows he needs God's forgiveness. It's always good to have Samuel offering sacrifices for sin. He needs God's favor. It is God who gives, he takes away. It is God who makes rich, he makes poor. It's God who blesses, and the God who allows curse. So he knows that he needs help from God. He he, he has enough common sense to know, I'm not really the divine power in the world who holds the whole world in his hands. I need his help, and so too have many religions throughout the day as they figure out ways to stroke the deity. or keep him from being angry or offering him food sacrifices that pleasure him so that they may then be blessed by the God that they may not love, but at least they fear. Saul knows that God is real, that he needs God's help. It's desperate, so he meets at the house of worship. He meets at Gilgal, and there he is. Let's give him some cred for at least being at the place where divine favor can be found. But he grows impatient with the timing and the methodology of God. He doesn't like what the God has determined is going on around him, which is quite often our case. We know we're not God. We know we need his help, but we frankly don't like him. But we're still gathered before him because we just don't want him to hurt us. So Saul decides he's waiting and waiting and waiting, and he can wait no longer which means it's time for him to self-perform. He's going to bring about the favor that he desires. He's going to be his own priest. How does he serve as a priest? Three things you might write down. First, he self-priests by instructing himself. Oh, he knows clearly what Moses has said in the, in, in the Torah that there are these men called prophets who don't ordain themselves. They are chosen by God from a certain tribe, and they are the ones who are to lead in worship and offer sacrifices. He also knows what Samuel has said. He's received revelation. He's been instructed. Samuel has said, go to Gilgal and wait. But he decides, I don't like God's instructions. I will be a law unto myself. I will write my own moral code. I will write my own worship regulations. I'll do what seems wise in my own eyes. And he instructs himself. He believes he's capable of determining that which pleases God. He imagines God will then smile and accept his way of doing things. He self-priests and instructs himself. Secondly, he self-priests and blesses himself. Now, he needs the blessing of victory in war. He needs the blessing of not losing too many men, maybe not even losing his own life. So what does he do? In order to secure the blessing of God, he engages in spiritual rituals. You might even call it religious practice. Why is he offering these sacrifices? Not because he loves God, but he needs the blessings of God. He wants the spiritual gifts more than the spiritual giver. And so now he is willing to offer his sacrifices in order to stroke the magic lamp, to pray the magic beads, to to do something that will cause God to respond in the way he wants God to handle, uh, respond. Well, Saul offers his sacrifices. He now reasons he is good to go. He's guaranteed the favor of God by just engaging in ceremonial duties. Some of you may be here today and may have even given in the offering because you think that if you do your duty, it'll go better for you this week. Saul's sure he's got the favor of God. He's good to go. That's when Samuel arrives. Now, I imagine a child climbing up on the counter, taking the top off of the cookie jar, with his hand in the cookie jar, who has already eaten one cookie and has the chocolate residue around his lips, with his hand back in the cookie jar when mom enters the kitchen. And quickly, he looks up and says, oh, I was just grabbing a cookie so I could come see you and ask if I could have permission to eat one with the chocolate residue around his mouth. This is kind of like uh, Saul's attitude before Samuel. He has just finished offering the sacrifices. And Samuel appears, and I think Saul's kind of looking sheepishly like, oh, boy. So what does he do? He oversells. Greetings. And in the words of the Hebrew text, the next thing he does is he greets and he actually blesses Samuel. He really thinks he is the priest. Glad to have you here. So nice of you to come. We were just hoping you would arrive. Are you here ready to lead us in worship? I added a little bit to that. He meets and blesses Saul. Samuel is having none of it. He looks directly at him and he asks a question, which is really not a question. It's just an accusation. Self-priest, what have you done? We know enough from Scripture to know how well this story would have gone if Saul would have fallen to his knees and confessed his sin of self-priesting. Because your whole Bible is full of Nineveh-like grace where God promises destruction and relents. God promises damnation and then saves. God promises curses for disobedience but ends up blessing those who are disobedient. The whole Bible is full of people like David will when he says, I have sinned and yet God doesn't take the kingdom from him. The biggest issue here is not the sin. The biggest issue is the lack of repentance, of thinking I have performed well enough, I am not gonna bow the knee and kiss the ring. Oh, how this story would have gone, but Saul's response is poor. He has acted like the self-priest and instructed himself. He has acted like the self-priest and blessed himself. Now he acts like the self-priest and justifies or defends himself. Notice he didn't say, well, what's wrong? He knows something's wrong. I think he already has his excuses made up. It's the Philistines they're gathering against me. It's the people. They're taking off. It's the prophet. Where have you been? All this is handling, being handled under the oversight of God, who is supposed to make us all have a happy homecoming. What's he doing? He's like Adam, blaming God for his sin, blaming Eve for his sin. He's like Aaron, who when Moses comes down from the mountain, He goes, I don't know where this golden calf came from. We just threw some things in there and out it came. He's blame shifting. He's defending himself. He's his own self-defense attorney. I really didn't want to offer the sacrifice. I had no other choice. He's saying that desperate conditions and desperate times Make it acceptable for one to compromise and become his own self-priest who writes his own law and does what he wants to do. And here we see his failure at self-priesting. For Samuel doesn't look at him ever and just go, that's okay. You did the best you could, and that's, that's all that matters. He declares Saul's condition despite your gathering, despite your religiosity, despite your offerings, despite your attempts at keeping the law in some degree, despite the circumstances around you, you are not one that has a heart after God. You are one who is foolish. You are one who does foolishness. You are one who does not care about God's commandments. You are guilty. You're a horrible Defense attorney. And then he says, I've already got your successor in mind. There's going to come one after you who does have a heart for me. Oh, man. Sometimes his habits will prove that he looks more like the devil than he does Jesus Christ. But David will be one who, at least in his heart, because he has a new heart given him by God, will repent of his sin. Then he says, but there are consequences. Your son is not going to be on the throne. There's not going to be a dynasty of people from the line of Saul. And there are other consequences. You could read them later on in your text today as the Philistines, they start taking over. They're wiping up. They're owning God's people. As a matter of fact, no one is allowed to even have their own swords or spears. They take away the right of people to defend themselves. And then they tax them by saying, when you want your farm implements sharpened, you have to come to us and overpay for that. They control the access to to even work on their own fields. And this is the situation that chapter 13 ends, in. you have Samuel looking at him going, your heart is bad. Your successor has been named. The consequences for your children and family are horrible because of your self-priesting, and so too for your people. That's how chapter 12 ended. Happy is the king and his people who follow the commands of the Lord. The same could be true for our nation. We are most blessed when our home, household leaders, our church leaders, and our governmental leaders follow the wisdom found in the scriptures. Happy is the king and his people who follow the commands of the Lord. But then perhaps the most sad thing is that final sentence I read to you. With that, Samuel left. Samuel's going down the road and Saul's over here. No prophet. Doesn't need one. No priest. Don't need one. I'm my own priest. No revelation. No word of God. No instruction. No intercession. no means of seeking divine favor from God. Saul's on his own, king in his own world, without Samuel, without God. And it goes way down here from here, way downhill from here. He starts off enjoying the victory and the honor of the Lord, having revival. Chapter 13 ends with an excommunication between he and the priest. As he says, I'll be my own priest. And how does it spiral down from here? Saul, who was the little sea Christ, which I have told you means the anointed one or means the Messiah, he was a little sea Christ, God's anointed. Saul, who was God's Christ from this point on, becomes God's antichrist. For the new Messiah who is set up, his name will be David. You'll learn about him in chapters to come. There will be no one who hates him more than Saul. He starts the chapter as the communing Christ. He ends the chapter as the excommunicated antichrist. So how do we respond to this? Well, Follow the points. Consider the goodness of God. Israel has desired another king from last week's sermon. They have forgotten him, forsaken him, and fornicated. And yet God still blesses Israel. That's our story. Consider the kindness of God. Secondly, consider the hostility of the wicked. We are in war. There are Philistines all around us. There are Nahashes that are the serpent's. There are Philistines, there are Ammonites, and there's a bunch of others that we got to do war against. But in our situation, the war is the devil, the world, and our flesh. As I said before, we are not in vacation. We are not to be passive. We are not to sit back and compromise and just share space with wickedness. We ought to be more like Saul in his best of days or Jonathan throughout his days. God has called us to engage in war. This is what we are to do not only for God's glory, but for those underneath our realms of authority. And so we are not on a cruise ship. We're on a warship. And never ought we to fear. We saw Jonathan can enjoy victory. We'll see it next week that he can enjoy victory when it looks like the odds are against him, but that old phrase is true. God and his individuals make a majority regardless of the numbers. There was Martin Luther against Europe, Hudson Taylor against China, William Carey against India, or David Livingston against America. There is never a time for God's people in this war to head for the hills or cross the river. God calls us to be people on mission. But to the theme of today, consider our tendency to self-priest. Will we continue to self-priest and instruct ourselves. It could be because of fear. We don't like God's timing or methodology, but we end up discounting God's instructions because we're our own priest. We don't like his laws, his rules, his commands, and his precepts, so we make law because that's what we do as priests. We instruct ourselves as if we're our own congregation. And in desperate days, we compromise. We we write new laws for desperate days. So even though we know that marriage is to be a lifelong commitment, we walk away from bad marriages. Or we discount truth to make the sale so that we can have more money to give away to God's purposes. Or we need to numb the pain so we become addicts to some substance or idol. Or we're students and we cheat to make the grade or to keep the grade so that we can get the nod to college, so that we can get the job we want, so that we can make our parents happy. Lots of ways in which we compromise in desperate days as we know what God's law says, but then we say, we'll be our own priests. We'll instruct ourselves. And God will smile and say, no big deal. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be self-priests and instruct ourselves. We also don't want to be self-priests and bless ourselves. Yes, all of us lust for health, wealth, and prosperity. We all want it. I like it. So what do we do? We get religious. We gather together. And we say our prayers, sing our songs, give our sacrifice, all in an effort to somehow date or court the deity and get Him to do for us what we want Him to do for us. We're our own priests thinking that if we just perform, He will bless us. He may bless us by harming us. He may bless us by not taking away the thorn, but giving us grace. He may bless us by not taking the burden off our shoulders, but strengthening our backs. He may bless us by making us so weak that we have to have brothers around us holding up our arms so that we can even pray. God's blessing does not look like what we think it does in this American world. And you don't get the duty, the job of thinking you come and do your religious rituals and somehow now you have earned his favor. Any good things that ever come to you is only because of his grace. I know that in my life, one of the things that I say is that I really believe that prosperity theology worked not in the world of my money or in the world of my happiness, but man, did I think it worked in regards to my children. That if I just went through the motions and performed good enough, they wouldn't backslide. That if I had them baptized and then catechized and then we brought them into the church and they came to the table and they were found on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and then they went to youth group and then we did Christian education and sent them to Christian camps in the summer, that somehow through my performing, God owed me children that wouldn't rebel. Is there anyone else here who had that fantasy? But it's just not true. Now, I'm not in any way saying we should not seek to do that, which is right. But any idea that we can perform to get his blessing ought to be further from our mind than it is today. Let it go. Any blessings, prosperity, health, peace, money, anything, is only his grace. Don't think that you're going to be the self-performing priest who strokes God well enough that he gives you a tip of a blessing that you desire. Finally, will we continue to be self-priests and defend ourselves? Oh, that Saul would have just fallen to his knees and confessed his sin. But he was the fool denying his depravity, pretending that somehow it's all gone away somewhere. He was the fool taking credit for Jonathan's success when he didn't deserve it. He was the fool declaring his own self-righteousness, discounting his sin, blaming others, believing he had merited enough before God offering his own sacrifice, and walking out of there absolutely sure he was good to go. This, my friends, is the self-priesting that you see in religion today. Knowing there is a God, knowing there is a deity, knowing that we need his help, then partnering with him, as if he does 50% and we do 50, or 75, 25, or 99, or one singing stuff like, in Christ alone, but not for a moment really believing it. Because we think that the great high priest needs us to self-priest to finish that which he has begun. But that's not going to be us any longer, and it's not going to be us coming to the table today. We will not continue our horribly sinful self-priesting. To do so is vain and foolish, harmful to ourselves and our families. It ignores the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you come to the table today thinking that you have adequately repented, confessed your sins, prepared yourself for the table, abstained from some big sin list that you've made up in your own mind, and done enough good deeds and loved your neighbors sufficiently to get yourself to the table, you're a self-priest like Saul, and you're offensive to God. He looks at us he says, what have you done? Don't you know what I have done? I'm the father who has sent my only son to earn your righteousness and die for all your sins and you're acting as if that's not enough, but you've got to keep the show going. He stands before us all saying, what have you done? And so today, The only people who should come forward are those who know their sin and know their righteousness, their robe of righteousness is only gifted from Jesus Christ. And you are falling on your knees saying, I am ready to just confess my sin and receive the pardon. The words from last week's sermon don't fear. You have done this evil? What a beautiful invitation that is to you today. You have done this evil. I have done this evil, but because we have a priest, he looks at us now and he says, don't fear. This is not religion, folk. This is not you partnering with Jesus. This is not what you hear across evangelical America where God does his part, but now you've got to cooperate with him. This is a covenantal gift, one way to you for anyone who raises their hand or comes forward and says, I am not worthy. There is a great sin of being one's self-priest, and Jesus even dies for that sin. And so, if you have been judging yourself and found yourself guilty in this regard, you see the hand before you on the screen. Just imagine that's Christ at the table today. He's the host. He's holding out his hands, and he's saying, come. You who are weary and heavy laden and guilty and hurting, come to the table. But if you're going to be self-righteous and pretend you deserve to be here because you've kept his covenant, maybe his hands go like this. Don't come. It's not safe for the self-righteous.